Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. So I came to yeah. the, in 2007 and uh, I feel so blessed. I mean, it's, uh, I'd say, such an amazing place where people are willing to bet on you. People are willing to, you know, they almost encourage people making mistakes. And you have all of these experienced people who've done it before. They would sit down with you or a coffee. They would tell you the good and the bad and the ugly of their experiences with the no expectation in return. I, I think it's a, it's a very, very special place and I feel extremely fortunate to uh, have landed here and worked with the team that I have. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Ajit Singh. Ajit, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Jess. Um, so for people not familiar with ThoughtSpot, can you tell us about it? Yeah. So think of ThoughtSpot as uh, Google for numbers, if I may, if I may use that phrase. ThoughtSpot allows uh, anyone to be able to ask questions of their data, anyone to be able to analyze data, irrespective of their technical skill level. There's a lot of analytics software out there that data experts, data scientists can use. But when it comes to people whose day job is not data, you know, they might be marketing people, HR people, you know, doctors or nurses or teachers or whoever. How do you enable them and empower them to get insights from data is the problem that we are trying to solve. And we have built uh, this very unique search technology that's powered by AI under the hood that makes it really easy for anyone to ask questions of data. Well, you've obviously done a good job at it. I'm looking at this customer list of, you know, Hulu and Daimler and Walmart and 7-Eleven and De Beers and these, these giant organizations. So what's an example use case when, you know, Daimler or, or, or somebody like that, what's, what's an example of how one of these customers would use that? Yeah. So for uh, a company like Daimler or any manufacturer for that matter, you might have people in procurement, you know, supply chain costs are one of the biggest costs and uh, you want to be uh, procuring the right parts from the right uh, source and, and ensuring that the quality and on-time delivery is happening. 
And obviously these days supply chains are spread all over the world. And you have a lot of different data sources, a lot of different uh, data types that eventually you could use to, to get insights about who your best suppliers are and how are they doing. And, 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 and if there is say a disruption, if there is an earthquake in Japan and some supply chains are disrupted, how should you reshape your sourcing strategy? So now things change so fast in business these days that the traditional model of someone from procurement going to the analytics team, to the BI team and saying, hey, can you build me a new kind of dashboard because there is this change that just happened and wait for a month for it to appear. It's, it's, it's just not, not the world that we live in. You know, we need to respond to everything happening around us right away and we should be proactive in, in capturing value. So we, our users would be procurement people. At a retailer, our, our users might be merchandisers. You know, they are responsible for, let's say, selling shoes on the website and they want to understand in real time, what are the trends? What kind of shoes are selling more? Is it size nine or size 13? What color and what should I stock? What should I promote? What's the pricing I can, I can do on this? All of these questions they want to ask, you know, we have customers that ask hundreds of thousands of questions per week using ThoughtSpot. And that is just not possible with your traditional dashboarding technology, like a Tableau or a Power BI or, or a Click or or anything else. And that is where we have been able to get to some of these best companies in their sector, even though they have a lot of existing technology, but when they use ThoughtSpot, it is it is really night and day. And, and, and the, the focus and the value has been in simplifying the user experience. I'm a huge fan of you know, design thinking. I'm a huge fan of simplifying stuff. Over time, technology gets very complex. Companies just keep adding more and more features and, and it's very hard for people to use. Our value is really uh, making it easy for them. Yeah. So what's an example of a way that you have simplified something that wasn't as simple before? So, so many things. I mean, like I said, the, if you can use a search engine and ask how much of this type of product I have sold or what kind of customer retention at a telecom company, then uh, how are my campaigns working? Which campaigns are customers responding to the most? These things used to take before ThoughtSpot a lot of time for analytics teams to build these dashboards for the business users. And, And by the way, it also simplifies the life of those analysts because they really don't want to be just you know, taking more and more requests from business users and building more pie charts. Uh, you know, these are all people that go into running analytics team or being part of analytics team, data science. A lot of them are math majors, engineers, science majors, and so on, and, and statisticians. They want to be working on more meaningful, hard problems on how to detect fraud that might be going on as opposed to building more pie charts. So it simplifies the life of business people (laughs) and it simplifies the life of data analysts as well. That's great. So you've had a pretty interesting background. You know, I look through your LinkedIn, I see your time at Honeywell and Oracle and some PwC and these organizations. But I think the one I wanna hear most about is is this last company that you co-founded. Can you tell us a little bit about that one as well? About Nutanix? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so ThoughtSpot is my second company as a co-founder and Nutanix, again, the focus was simplification. We started the company in 2009 with the, with the goal of simplifying data center infrastructure. You know, data centers had become very complex. People were spending a lot of money on buying networking gear from Cisco, storage from EMC, NetApp, servers. This was before the whole idea of cloud was born. Nutanix enabled enterprises to build their own clouds, just like 
uh, Google and Facebook, these web companies, web scale companies had built their internal clouds. We built software that would allow any enterprise in the world to run and build their own cloud, which had all the characteristics of easy to use, easy to operate, easy to scale, lower cost, all of these things. So it was, it was, it was, you know, somewhat impactful company, I would say it, it created this whole industry of hyper-converged infrastructure. The company went public in 2016. It was the largest tech IPO of 2016. And the company is uh, still around and growing. And I'm really proud to have been part of uh, building that company as well. Oh, congratulations. What, what, was the, what was the size of it when it went public? It was, I think about in terms of number of people, it must have been around, I'd say around two and a half thousand people or so. We were selling product in more than a hundred countries. The IPO itself was around uh, two plus two and a half billion dollars. That that was in 2016, that was big. Now we see all these IPOs and <laughs> we know that are billions of dollars. It's a, it's a different scale. You know, eventually company market cap grew to about uh, $10 billion and it's, I think, currently around seven. Yeah. So I'm interested, you know, you you do this, you have, you know, the, the big success as far as most tech entrepreneurs of, of building a zero to billion dollar company. And and now, like you said, closing, currently trading closer to seven billion. What are lessons that you took from that experience as you're now building ThoughtSpot? Yeah, there have been a lot of lessons throughout, you know, the, the 15 years that I've spent in the Valley. Before starting Nutanix, I was working at a startup called Astro Data Systems. That was my first startup experience. And we learned a lot from there that we applied at Nutanix. And what I learned from Nutanix, we are applying uh, some of that at, at ThoughtSpot. So lessons learned, I would say, would be around how we approached the market. You know, we went after a large existing market where technology had become old. And we, you know, went to the whiteboard and built fundamentally new architecture ground up to solve the problems of the industry. You know, so the lesson number one was... It doesn't matter if there are a lot of existing players in a market. If the market is big and the technology has become old, things have not changed for a while and existing vendors are just, you know, sort of milking the customers, then it's, you have the opportunity. It will be, it'll take work. You will have to innovate, but uh, you can disrupt such an industry if you honestly try to understand the problem and have a, have a bold approach of building from the ground up. So that was one. Second lesson I would say was that what we built at Nutanix was inspired by things that uh, Google had done in terms of building very software-driven data centers. Data centers before Google used to be all about hardware, right? But Google said all of the intelligence can actually happen much better in in software. So we built a very software-driven architecture for building these private clouds for enterprise companies. So at ThoughtSpot as well, we have taken the approach of user experience that's inspired by Google because it's the user experience, the very simple interface that billions of people use every day to ask all kinds of questions. And we are doing the same thing at ThoughtSpot. We're saying, can I simplify the experience when people have to interact with data same way that Google has done it for information. In terms of our market approach at uh, ThoughtSpot, it's the same thing. When we started the company, people said, oh, why are you starting yet another BI company? There is business intelligence company. There is so many of them out there. But our point was that all of them eventually are used by some analysts, some data expert to build dashboards for people. And the whole user population of business users in which you know, people call them knowledge workers, there is more than a billion of them. There is no product that is targeted directly at them, that is built for them, that understands them, who they are, 
and, and builds for them. And that's the opportunity. It has taken us a lot of work. What we do is not easy. It looks very simple on the surface, but under the hood, it's a very complex and a, and a, and a massive number crunching machine. And it's been fun. You know, we have a really strong team. We recruited heavily from Google. Some of my co-founders came from Google. But frankly, you know, we have struggled in many ways to make it work. And it's it's been a continuous process of doing things, learning, iterating, but but staying on that mission that we have, which is create the creating a more fact-driven world by empowering people to access data. We have stayed on that and we are we are continuing to just chip away at the problem and, and make it easier and easier for people. You know, it makes me think of that uh, quote attributed to Leonardo da Vinci that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's very well put. And there's another one which is making things simple is hard. <laughs> it's very hard. And make. yet, and yet, you think about, I don't know, I, I think about this theory of business. I, I'd be interested if you see it differently, but it's almost like a, a very high probability way of making money is by removing other people's obstacles. Like if we're willing to take on the hard work, mm-hmm. so often somebody wants to pay for that, right? And like the more we're willing to take on, I mean, I know it sounds like absurdly simple and, and maybe not that insightful, but to me, how often like when people are struggling to grow a business, it so often comes down to one of two things, speed or simplicity, mm-hmm. right? Like, like, are you making it, are you making it quick and easy for their problems to get solved? Because humans are efficiency machines. We all want to survive and yep. solving our problems yep. faster, faster and or easier is just such a natural marketing magnet. I mean, do you see it differently? How would you say it better? No, I think, no, I think you've, you put it really well. There, there's something there. You know, a lot of these things, they, they seem obvious, but when people actually go about doing their stuff. They miss obvious things. And the way I have seen it expressed in real world is, you know, people get so much in, they fall in love with their idea and they focus less on the problem they're trying to solve. Right. And what you're saying is that if you can remove pain for people, they will pay for it. And, and it, it's, it's very important to focus on the problem and not the solution. The solution will come. Solution might even it change and, and you might evolve. You will evolve, not you might, you will evolve. But uh, deeply understanding the problem that you're trying to solve is so important for entrepreneurs, both Nutanix and ThoughtSpot. We spent almost uh, you know six to nine months in each company just studying the markets and the problem before we honed in on the idea. In fact, both cases, we did not have a light bulb moment and say, this is an idea and we must go and express ourselves uh, through this idea. It was more about what are some of the big markets that are around us and what are some of the biggest problems that people are facing there and talk to a lot of people, understand uh, their challenges, and then go to the whiteboard and then think about the solution. To me, it's always, you know, I think about the market first, problem second, and idea last in that in that order. Because if you make sure that you're working on a meaningful problem, then everything else follows. You know, the people will uh, pay for it, your company will grow, you'll be able to raise money, a lot of great things will happen. Uh, can you give us that, well, I feel like that was so important. Can you give us that one more time in order there? But you feel like that order is? Yeah, I, I, I mean, all of actually, I, I, I should say, I would put team first. So team comes first for me. You know, picking the right co-founders and then as you grow, who you recruit and all of that. That is always first because ultimately they have to solve it. But in terms of your strategy, it's market first, problem second, and idea last. And I'll, maybe I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. By market first, what I mean is you have to really understand. I have this 
sort of mental framework of market risk versus execution risk. Market risk being, is there a market for what I'm trying to do? What's the market I'm going after? You know, I can think about, I don't know, maybe a phone that can fly or something like that, but is there, a, it's a cool idea, but is there a market for it? What problem does it solve? How many companies have been built in that market? Who are the current players? How do people currently buy and sell products there? What are the channels? So understanding that whole market structure is so important. And when was the last meaningful company that was started there? If you know you you look at a market like web conferencing and, and Zoom was started you know, several years ago, uh, but it's only picking up now. I have to think about timing. Is this the right time to start a company that's trying to disrupt Zoom? Maybe it is. And and I'm not saying that you can't, but you have to really be aware of the market risk that you are taking and solve for it. Right. I personally try to go after opportunities where market risks are fairly low, but execution risks are high. What you're trying to solve is hard to solve. It has to be very, very hard to solve. And you have to be able to build a product that solves it and then eventually also sell it and market it. So I like I spend a bunch of time just learning about the markets before we decide to do a company. And then comes the problem because it's very hard to pivot out of a market completely. Obviously, there are examples, great examples like, like Slack, but there is very few that are able to do that. And there is so many that 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 don't survive. So pivoting out of a market is close to impossible. Then next is problem that you're solving in that market, deeply understanding that, and then going to the solution as opposed to falling in love with your idea. And then you're trying to find a solution, sorry, a problem that that would attach to your solution. You know, I know that those things sound simple, but I feel like there's so much wisdom in there because of the mistakes I've made by not following the order that you're talking about myself. You know, I look at like, so Eric Wong, founder of of Zoom, we had him on the show. And I was just fascinated by his obsession with the customer experience, you know, instead of showing up with, oh, I know what everybody needs, you know, like, I feel like as founders, we, we, we love to repeat these stories of Steve Jobs saying people, you know, if I'd asked people what they want, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have picked an iPhone, they didn't know it was possible. Or, you know, Henry Ford, if I asked people what they would have wanted, they would have said faster horses, right? We love to, we love to repeat those examples. And there, there is a validity to them but there's also a lack of humility to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you say that, I think about the humility that it takes to put idea last. I mean, if you're ambitious and you're an idea person and you, you have like, you have the guts to start a company, you probably are like full of ideas. You're probably an idea person. And like the discipline to put idea last at the end of that, I feel like it's such a valuable lesson. We had Steve Blank on the show a couple of months ago from Stanford, mm -hmm. you know, and his real emphasis on this, like, Hey, go and do customer discovery calls without an agenda, without mm -hmm. an idea that you're, you're just trying to confirm, like really trying to understand the problems instead of trying to shoehorn them into liking your idea that you already have. Yeah. Yeah. I got to tell you, I look at many of my business failures and I was not doing that. I look at so many of my friends and their startups and they do have a really interesting idea but it doesn't quite land mm -hmm. because I and they have moved it up the timeline and, and done it not in the order you just described. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I mean, look, um, I have made my own fair share of mistakes. It's not that we are all humans. We have our biases. It's it's easy to talk about principles, but uh, 
we all um, following them 100% and having the discipline all the time. And there is temptation to say, yeah, it looks like I got it. Let me just go build it. Uh, it's there. It's just human. But uh, I think that discipline does really, really help you. And all of these things that get quoted often, you know, horse and car and Steve Jobs and this and that, I don't think in real world they play out that black or white. You know, all of these people, they really understood the users they were trying to serve and they, they delivered great products for them, not by just not understanding the users or not talking to them or, or something like that. You have to have sort of a, a very unique point of view about the world, you know, the problem. I keep saying, you know, best entrepreneurs are very passionate about the problem they solve and not the solution. And if, but you have to understand that very deeply. And in reality, you will ultimately have to start with an idea. It's not that you, without an idea, you can't start working on a solution, but you have to keep in mind the problem you're trying to solve and then evolve build the solution, iterate, iterate, get feedback, iterate. So I, I think we all quote some of these axioms to communicate our point of view, but there is always a counter axiom, you know, and that's why these things are so hard, you know, defining the right product, building the right product. It is so hard because there's no one axiom that you can say, and I'm just going to apply that in an absolute, absolutism just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was looking at a Forbes article talking about when you guys had raised money in, I think in 2019, at like a $1.9 billion valuation. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Am I getting that math right? When, when you think about doing this twice, you know, building, you know, starting from scratch and building multi-billion dollar organizations, what's a principle that you learned by actually doing it that you feel like not everybody else understands? I mean, these days there is so much wisdom being shared on all kinds of social media and books that it's hard to come up with things that people don't know. But I would say things that people don't practice as much is... Sure. Everybody talks about, it's about, you know, it takes a village. It's about people and all of that. But truly believing that, you know, you talked about me having been part of these two companies. I know how much I did versus how much were other people around me doing, you know, maybe 0.1% of it all, to be honest. I mean, all the way from our investors who bet on us from day one to great engineers who are leaving multi-million dollar jobs at companies like Google and coming to work at ThoughtSpot at a, at a you know, fraction, a small fraction and working harder than Google uh, or other companies they were at. It is, you, you really have to have the sense of gratitude and understanding that it's actually them who's making it happen. You're just sort of, you know, maybe, you know, an excuse more than anything else. And that's something I don't see as much being practiced where, the the sense of gratitude for what other people do on the team, I sometimes find that lacking in, in entrepreneurs. A lot of it becomes about them. I'm not saying everybody. This is, I mean, there is there is a lot of very great entrepreneurs and, and, and they have the right perspective and are humble. But I sometimes find that some level of success can get to people's head and they start thinking it's I'm doing it. It's it's just not true. It is not true. And, and that has to reflect in how you treat your team, how you run your company, how you compensate them. Are you able to put the company ahead of yourself? Are you able to put the team ahead of yourself? And at ThoughtSpot, we have been very particular about how we define and scale our culture. We use two words to describe our culture. We call it selfless excellence. So be excellent, strive to be the best at what we do, but always be selfless. Put the team ahead of yourself and, and we practice it. You know, I, I, would, I, can, I can say very confidently that you ask anyone in ThoughtSpot, they would tell you what our culture is like and, and the fact that we actually practice it. 
Well, yeah, what are some practical examples day to day? What, what, how does, what does that show up like? It, it's, it's sort of, I would say, become a bit of a movement. You know, we, in fact, we have a Slack channel called Selfless Excellence. And you can see how many times people are, you know, giving shout outs to their colleagues and, and you know, people, people in other parts of the organization that they may not even be working day to day with, where people are jumping at the problems, helping out, even if it, it, it may not be something that is their job, actually. You know, so um, a sales uh, person giving a uh, shout out to uh, their colleague when they are sharing leads with them or they're helping them with their sales process when, you know, that sales, other salesperson may get no commission from it, but they're helping their colleagues in the sales organization to maybe find a lead in a certain organization or help close a deal or Maybe there is a new sales uh, person who has come and helping them with how to position the product and how to communicate it. And you would see engineers, you know, helping each other out and uh, and sharing their knowledge and and going. It's 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 it happens like tens of such incidents are actually communicated every day. And how many happen every day is 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 a lot more. And that's been very consistent. And I'm very very proud of of that that we're building a place where people enjoy working and they help each other to succeed. It's not a zero-sum game. We don't want to build a company where people look at it as a zero-sum game. Interesting. You know what I like about the Slack channel idea is it, it seems like it could almost be contagious. When you start seeing that your coworkers are doing this, it almost like becomes the way things are done here. Yeah, it's like, you know, uh, if you go to any party, you you see how others are behaving and you start behaving like that. It's a little bit of that because, you know, humans are social animals and they, they want to adapt to the, to the environment they are in. And uh, we believe that if we create uh, a positive environment, everybody will behave positively. And the, the counterpoint there is that if we see there is selfishness, we actively, you know, take care of it. We don't promote it. We don't let it grow. Yeah. yeah. You know, switching gears, I, I grew up in Canada, but I loved coming down to the States for business. I feel like this is just such a great place for opportunity. Where, where did you grow up before you came out to the Valley? So I, I grew up in India. I went to school there. I even worked mostly north part of India, near and about Delhi. Yeah, I, I grew up there. And then I worked in Bangalore for six years. And then I was working with Honeywell. I came to the States to work for Honeywell in Arizona, spent a year there. And we were building a new product. It was a lot of fun. But that once that was done, I'm like, I'm here and I want to be in the Valley. So I came to yeah. the Valley in 2007 and uh, I feel so blessed. I mean, it's, uh, I'd say, such an amazing place where people are willing to bet on you. People are willing to, you know, they almost encourage people making mistakes. And you have all of these experienced people who've done it before. They would sit down with you or a coffee. They would tell you the good and the bad and the ugly of their experiences with the no expectation in return. I, I think it's a, it's a very, very special place. And I feel extremely fortunate to uh, have landed here and worked with the people that I have. Yeah, that's great. What do you feel like, what do you feel like have been any of your advantages for growing up that way? What, what advantages do you think you had growing up there and now coming here? Yeah. I mean, so like a lot of immigrants, I grew up in a middle-class family. I mean, it was we were fine and we had all the basics, uh, basic needs were met, but you had to, you had to work hard to survive. You had to do well. Your education was the only way to actually uh, survive and thrive. So growing up in the environment where you have to continuously be on your toes to do well in academics and, and then get a job and, and do well there to grow, it just creates a good work ethic. It's a really, really good work ethic. So that's one. Second, I feel like at some level, being able to take risks comes from that as well. 
because if you haven't uh, started your life with the with the lot then you know you're like okay what's the worst that can happen i i don't need a, a fancy lifestyle to 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 live and survive i'm used to you know just a simple life and if you have that mentality then you it gives you more courage to take more risks so i i think there have been that advantage and you know growing up in india particularly well, people help each other quite a bit it's very hard to do things on your own because no one person has all the means that that you need to to live your life and that has carried on here as well you know realizing that you need to lean on others when you when you need help you do that and i feel like sometimes people don't lean on others enough thinking that they will expose themselves they'll look like a weak person i actually think it takes courage to lean on others and these are some of the things that i think have been very uh, helpful uh, to me in in my my entrepreneurial journey you know I, i'm fascinated with the indian market i i almost moved to new york a handful of years ago to start a fund my one partner he's kind of a mentor of mine but he had he had grown up in mumbai except he still calls it bombay and came over was at credit suisse for years in lehman and and stuff and you know everybody's talked about china for so many years and the rise of china and stuff but to me as a market it seems like india just seems fascinating to me of of the potential over the next years of people who can people who can figure out how to sell into that market and and be culturally relevant and and actually have the product market fit it feels like there's just so much untapped opportunity in so many industries there do you see it similar or what what kind of ideas do you have about india yeah i mean it's it's uh, actually a very unique market in the world in the sense that it's uh, one of the largest economies uh, growing pretty fast and it's definitely more open than china and ip protection is better uh, than china so i do think that there is a lot of opportunity in india it's a, it's a bit of a cost sensitive market so you have to obviously design products and services that will work well for that market and it has uh certain characteristics when it comes to distributing products there is still if you are thinking about building let's say enterprise product then the distribution has to there is there is obviously some large enterprise but there is a very large number of smb or even mom and pops that are a big part of the economy so you uh, there is a lot of opportunity to innovate in that model but it is also important to understand that market very deeply you can't uh, take a product as is copy and paste and and and, and transplant it there yeah it just just won't work you have to think about distribution yeah. even before you actually think about product how the hell will i distribute this product because that's that's the key to success in market like india okay you know i think my my next question is you have done an excellent job at attracting highly highly intelligent educated accomplished team members who like you said are are leaving larger salaries to come over what are some principles for effective recruiting and then keeping them happy enough to stay yeah principle number 1 is recruiting is a lot of work so <laughs> you have to put in the effort you know it's not you know you can be a great recruiter or not or closing and all of those things are important but you have to put in a lot of work to recruit a uh, great talent i'll 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 share with you the first i'd say 18 to 24 months of starting thoughtspot i i did maybe more than a 100 coffee meetings at the starbucks near google uh, it was on my way to work and every day typically <laughs> i would be meeting somebody and telling them what we are doing and why we are doing it i think you have to spend a lot of time particularly in the early stage because and and how recruiting evolves over time changes 
when you just have an idea and you're recruiting your initial team versus you know you are a growth company you're a pre-ipo company and you're a public company you will appeal to different uh, people that have different risk reward profiles so you have to put in the work you have to be passionate about what you are doing if you're not passionate then and you have to be passionate about the problem you're solving and the mission you are on it, you you almost you can never recruit people just to just by saying that you'll make a lot more money come here i think no good person is actually going to be fundamentally driven uh, just by that obviously people want to be financially successful they want to take care of their families and all of those things are extremely important but they have to really understand deeply who you are and and uh, why you're doing what you're doing so i've spent a lot of time on recruiting and i have uh, i think i've done i've made some mistakes as well i wouldn't say that everything that i have done uh, has worked out well i've done my own fair share or sometimes even unfair share of mistakes and I've gotten better over time. But this number one thing is you got to put in the time. And second, you have to be uh, really good at reference checks. You know, particularly when you're recruiting execs, doing deep reference checks is extremely, extremely important. And it, again, sounds um, like an obvious thing to do, but sometimes you meet people and you kind of fall in love with them and and, and what they have to tell you, but and you don't do a good job of uh, talking to people that have worked with them in the past. And that's when you can make some mistakes. What does the, what does deep reference checks look like for you? Well, I think one, you want to talk to people that have worked with the person and it can be people that they are introducing to you. This has to be blind reference checks. At the same time, you have to do it in a high integrity way. You cannot do it without telling the candidate. I would never do that because, you know, they might be in a big existing job and you don't want to create risks for them. So I have, I do reference checks, but I always take the candidate in confidence when they are comfortable. That's when I would do it. But I would find my own people through my network that might have worked uh, with them in the past and, and talk to them about their strengths, weaknesses, you know, things like that. I would almost hire somebody with, without meet, meeting them if I get the right kind of references. What, yeah, what are some what are some of those signals to you when you when you're hearing what in those reference calls that you that's well, a green light for you? Yeah, so you know how they we talked about selflessness earlier, obviously, and I mean don't get me wrong when I talk about selflessness, it doesn't mean that we are running a charitable organization. Ultimately, everybody wants to be successful, but I feel that the best way to be selfish is to be selfless. If you are operating as a team and you put the 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 goals of the team ahead of your own short term goals, team will win, and hence you will win as well. So uh, there has to be that, you know, they have to be really good to work with. They have to also have demonstrated growth in their career. If somebody's done the same jobs five times over, obviously they're going, and that's the role I am recruiting for. I would not recruit someone who's done the same job five times over because you're not going to get any creativity out of them. They'll come with a lot of preconceived notion and every situation is extremely unique. So you want to see situations where they have gone out of their comfort zone and done things that were not, you know, linear in their career. It might have been their choice or they were kind of you know, thrown into it. But these are a few things, some of the few things that I try to uh, assess. Those are great. You know, you think about, you think about what you've accomplished. There are so many other entrepreneurs that would like to have accomplished what you've already accomplished and you're not done yet. What do you think you've done differently? What, what would you attribute your success to that not everybody else does? I mean, just to be clear, I, I don't think that I have accomplished, uh, you know, a lot of substantial things. There is, if you look around the world, there is there is so many people that have made a real impact. I, I feel like I'm still very early in my uh, journey. But I, I don't know if I've done it differently or not, because I haven't talked to you know every successful person. But I've tried to approach everything with uh, a lot of ambition 
but a good heart. You know, sometimes these two things don't go together. Uh, I've tried to, I've tried to do the right thing with the people that I work with. I have tried to uh, recruit people that are very passionate about building. You know, they want to actually be building, and that you know, builder mindset is 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 somewhat uh, unique, and it's not for for everyone because you have to deal with a lot of suboptimality, with a lot of imperfection, a lot of processes, tools, systems that don't exist. If you're a builder, you will be able to work in that environment. If someone is, let's say, running a 5,000 people organization at a large company, they may not be the right fit for, for building. So I, I try to make sure that I'm working with people that are really good at what they do. They're better than me at what they do, for sure. And I try to see that builder's uh, mentality in them, the founder's mentality. Actually, there is a really nice video. I think it's from Bain, Bain Consulting called the founder's mentality. You can find it on YouTube. It's one of my favorite videos on entrepreneurship and just building companies. A uh, lot of wisdom there. So those are the kinds of people that I try to. Oh, great. Yep. Yeah, I just, I just found these videos. I'm going I'm to review these. So oh, it looks like they've got a book as well. Yeah, yeah, it's great. But I prefer to watch a twenty-minute video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's great. You know, okay. My next question is: thinking through, thinking through such a digital world we're in, but yet you still need human interactions and stuff. Thinking through, you know, mark, you know, branding, lead generation, nurturing, sales, customer success. When you think about that chain, what are what are some of your principles as you approach that or think about how your company designs that? Yeah, I think principle number one is to, and perhaps the only principle is to put a customer in the middle of all of this, you know, really understanding who the customer is and, and really worrying about their experience as they're touching every part of your organization. Are they feeling it? Are they feeling who you want ThoughtSpot to be? So whether they're getting a marketing email from you, or there is, you know, let's say an escalation to the support team if something is wrong with their system, or they're dealing with the salesperson who's trying to sell them ThoughtSpot product. What are they experiencing throughout that process is so important. And that's one thing that we've tried to instill in our team is to always, you know, put customer ahead and and everything we do do it with passion and creativity but do it with integrity right whether it's our sales process marketing process lead gen it, it comes down to putting them ahead the second one i mean there is there is kind of obvious stuff which everybody knows being data driven understanding what's happening where and continuously optimizing uh, a digital world gives you opportunities to do that much better than you could in a in a physical world. We spend a lot of effort in our product to be able to understand what the user behavior is and and iterate on that. I was actually very lucky to be exposed to design thinking very early in my career, 2003, 2007, when I was at Honeywell. We worked with IDEO on a project and this was before Steve Jobs had shown us what power of design can be with iPhone and iPad. And the design thinking approach is something that not in a sort of academic way, but in a practical way, something that we have tried to apply throughout the organization. And it's been very valuable. It's been very, very valuable. Thinking about the experience of the user and the customer. Also, it's important to make the distinction, particularly if you're if you're in a B2B space, making the distinction between a customer and, and a user. This is something actually I learned from our head of design, who was previously at Apple, then Pinterest. And he talks about Bob Axley. He's, he's really an amazing leader. He talks about the customer is, is the person who's paying for your product, but the user is the one that is buying. And you have to understand these two things uh, are different and, and serve them in the right way. Yeah. You know, well, 
along those lines, I, I guess my next question is, you know, like you said, there are a lot of folks who talk about data and they talk about making better decisions and, and stuff. And, you know, as you're saying, there, there are a lot of BI tools out there, right? Business intelligence tools. When you think about how often like having a better product isn't enough, you need to break through the noise to get people to find out about it. Yep. And yet we're just, we're just swamped in messages these days. I mean, there's 60 billion messages a day going out on mobile across the world. And, and people are really working hard to shout the loudest or to stand out. You know, it's, it's a competitive environment. When mm. you think about the ways to break through so that people can find out what great stuff you've, you've got, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that have been effective to be able to go, hey, we're not just like one of those other ones. How do you get people to like stop long enough to find that out? Yeah, yeah. So first, you have to be genuinely different. If you are not, if you are like one of those other uh, products, then people will so th- see through it. People are too smart to, you know, fall for this marketing lines. Obviously, you can see a lot of websites where people put stuff up, but it doesn't, you know, really scale. What we have found to be very effective is if you can actually show them how you are different. So actually showing the product has been the most powerful thing for us. On this podcast, I've told you that we are uh, a search engine for data. You can search, but if I just showed you, you'll instantly get it. So mm-hmm. we try to, in our marketing and sales process, we try to show our product as early as possible and then do the talking, which for us has, has done really well. So if you can find ways to showcase what you have, and it has, if it is not obviously different for the, whoever is looking at it, then you're probably not going to be able to sell them the idea that it is different. So show them, let them experience it. And, and that's how you, know, you can really demonstrate that you are different. You know, so often enterprise, you know, I, I feel like I've been a sales guy since I was 15 years old, even as, you know, chairman of my real estate investment fund now, I just feel like I'm top salesman, you know, and yet I think about, you know, 25 years ago when I got my first sales job or 15 years ago when I was doing different sales work in Southern California, compared to today, so much more of that sale happens online before somebody actually talks to a rep these days. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's so much more information that customers feel entitled to without having to talk to somebody. When you think about when you think about the likelihood that this is even, you know, probably going to go even more this direction over time, what kind of principles, what kind of ideas do you bring to to how you build your website, how you do your marketing to to really facilitate this the likelihood that they actually do want to talk to somebody at your company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually so first the first several years of ThoughtSpot we didn't have that and we have learned from the companies that started I would say in the last 3 to 4 years this whole movement around product led growth where uh, product uh, is experienced first and product is leading the sales process is is a new one and we are also learning and I think we have done really well over the last couple of years we started a growth team we hired someone from Google who was previously at Facebook they had built growth teams there and now you can go and experience ThoughtSpot and we made it really easy for people to to set it up to connect it to data sources and all that so I do think that the world is changing and before this also we were always thinking about the the journey of the buyer and what part of it they can how much can they get through without having to talk to someone and that's easier in the consumer space because you you really can't have salespeople talking to somebody to sign up for a facebook account or an instagram account or a twitter account uh, it's got to be like that and i think that model is now starting to come in the enterprise uh, software world uh, as well it's relatively new but i think it's 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 really game changing and that's why you see you know a lot of these saas companies 
actually be able to scale really fast where you can have a very high high velocity acquisition model for customers and then customers can grow with you. So who in the you, you mentioned you feel like there's companies that have been doing better at this in the last three or four years. Who are some organizations that you feel like are doing well with that? Um, I mean, there is a there is a collaboration product we use. We call it uh, it's called Miro M I R O. Really good experience when you uh, you can uh, sign up for it and you can invite other team members and and lo and behold suddenly you have a hundred people in your company using Miro to exchange ideas. And it's been very powerful for us because in COVID, the teams were distributed and uh, you're not getting in a, in a room to do whiteboarding. And uh, this product does an amazing job of creating that collaborative environment. And you can do that without talking to anybody from sales. Now, you know, there are obviously every product is slightly different and, and requires a different process to get started. But by and large, I think that companies like Miro and Slack was another very good example. I mean, you could get started and then it can grow virally inside the company. Now we sort of take it for granted, but when they started sort of social networks inside the workspace was, was not a very common thing. Yammer had done something there, but it was still very, very limited adoption, I would say. So yeah, there is a lot of bleed over happening from the consumer space into enterprise and it's creating new kind of experiences, new opportunities. And there is a lot for enterprise entrepreneurs to learn from, from these. Maybe I know we're winding down here on time. You guys have, you know, you talk about artificial intelligence on the website and, and, and other places for folks who are, are thinking about AI and are intimidated by it. Where would you recommend people to start? to start to learn, to start to see where the opportunities are for their business? Yeah, I mean, look, I think any movement, when it starts, there is a, a little bit more hype than reality. And I feel like some hype is also necessary because that's how you can quickly communicate what is the art of the possible to the world, get a lot of people excited, and then they have to work and figure out what is really possible and then get a subset of that value. And that's okay, as long as you are not over-projecting what is what is possible deliberately, you know? So I think when it comes to AI for people that are just getting started, what is important is to know that you don't need the most complex, the deepest algorithms to, to create value. Lot of value, even inside companies like uh, Google. I mean, my co-founder at, at ThoughtSpot, he was at Google before this five years. And he would tell me that, you know, he was part of their ads team. And he would tell me that 90 to 95% of value was created with simple stuff, very, very simple stuff. And then it's the incremental growth of how do you go from 95% to 96% and, and so on. That's where you are continuously iterating. But to get started, uh, you don't need rocket science. There is a lot of data that people have now. There is a lot of compute that is available in the cloud. There is all kinds of you know, AI services that are available. Pick a very high value problem. That's important. And then do simple things, create value, and then iterate on that. That would be my suggestion. That's what I have seen some of our best customers do as opposed to, you know, try to boil the ocean. That's great. Well, listen, we covered a lot of different subjects here. Maybe yeah, to end off. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe to end off, what's, what's one thing we didn't talk about that I should have asked about? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, there is nothing in particular that I wanted to cover. I, I, I thought it was a very, very uh, engaging discussion. Well, besides going to thoughtspot.com, where's, where's the best place for other people to follow you? Just connect on social media or? Yeah, I mean, like every company, there is, you know, we are on social media. I'm I'm on Twitter personally and, and LinkedIn. And yeah, that's that's the best way to to follow us. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, this is really fun for me. <laughs> thanks for thanks for doing this. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I really liked your questions and we covered a lot of different topics, as you said. So thanks for having me. That's great. Yeah, you bet. Bye everyone.